Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. I'd like to invite all of you to join us on Clubhouse for vibrant discussions of the topics we cover on this show. You can also visit us on social platforms at Care More Be Better. If you like what we're doing, you can support the show by sharing it with friends and keep it ad-free by donating directly on our site. Just visit caremorebebetter.com. Today, we get to talk about fashion, fast fashion, and a slower and more deliberate eco-friendly fashion. To dive into this topic, I'm joined by Caroline Preby of the Center for the Advancement of Garment Making. Caroline, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. It's nice to be here. As we open this discussion, I'd love to invite you to just share your story. Why did you feel so compelled to take on this effort? Um, It started about 20 years ago. I was um, actually a new graduate out of business school and working at Donna Karen. It was my first sort of large corporate fashion experience. Having come from a family business, I found it to be really sort of wasteful and unappealing. (laughs) I also, as breakups often do, inspire you to look for some more meaning in life. And I discovered this woman's pioneering work, Linda Gross, who was... I would say the matriarch of the sustainable fashion movement in the United States. She started the e-collection with Esprit in the mid nineties, which spawned the organic fiber certification. It was originally just food and all sorts of interesting materials beyond organic cotton, but like Tencel and organic linens and, and whatnot. She was putting together a curriculum at this art school with a fashion program called CCAC. Now it's just CCA. And I decided to move across the country and study under her. It was a really incredible experience that has sort of directed the trajectory of my career because I learned that there's a beautiful way to design a business that also is reflected in the beauty of the clothes. And it doesn't involve labor exploitation or soil degradation or all the dirty things that are often associated with fashion and supply chains. And I just thought that was the obvious way to design (laughs) that has inspired me to primarily work for smaller brands, because as you can imagine, it hasn't been a a popular topic or even a known topic, sustainability within fashion. I started working for Maria Cornejo, which was, had a small, her own small atelier. She had a zero waste practice where any leftover fabrics were used within the studio to make garments to then sell in her store. She made all her own patterns, these very like timeless pieces that I still own. I went on then to actually start my own brand, a knitwear brand based in sustainability and really longevity. I really still to this day think the most sustainable garment is the one that you love and take care of and potentially give to a daughter or a granddaughter or whomever. So that was really the intent. And then to also use materials uh, with less impact. Uh, This was probably in the early 2000s. So there weren't a ton of options, but I ended up using um, hemps and organic linens and cashmere and alpaca and merinos and employed a lot of zero waste pattern making. I then went to collaborate with Alabama Channon, who also 
is sort of a, a pioneer in, in the movement and originally started upcycling t-shirts into hand beaded, hand embroidered, beautiful, almost like art objects. She employs women in an area in Alabama that had been sort of decimated when NAFTA came. It was a bunch of sort of cotton industry, garment industry workers that had been displaced. And now it was also in an attempt to preserve the craft, the hand craft work of quilters. And then I ended up going to work for Rogan and Loomstate. Loomstate being the organic cotton denim sort of pioneer. Um, And there, that's where I got into menswear and did a lot of sort of eco-friendly projects for Barney's. And I got to do special projects, basically. They knew what my interests were. I mean, you've mentioned some big names as you've, you know, named some of your history from Donna Karen to Barney's on the retail side. I mean, these are some big names in fashion. There are so many little breadcrumbs that you've dropped just as you've opened and talked about your history. You've talked about things like labor exploitation and soil degradation, which are big problems. And even just fabric waste from like creating the right pattern or creating a pattern to get the most use out of the fabric bolts that you're using, right. correct? So let's just pick one of these to start with and kind of dig in a little bit. Sure. I'd love to help people understand that cotton is a complex subject. Yeah. <laughs> and when you mentioned something like soil degradation, I mean, automatically people might be thinking about the farming that is used essentially for garment production. So you're thinking cottons, possibly bamboo, possibly hemp. What's happening right now in the world of fashion as it relates to these things with um, our impact on the environment? Cotton, there's a few different ways to grow cotton and cotton is grown all around the world. Some places are better to grow cotton than than others, and it's better to grow it with a group of crops instead of a monocrop, because then it requires this industrial conventional method of farming that requires probably pesticides, fertilizers, uh, herbicides, and defoliants. The defoliant is Agent Orange, typically, which is not good for humans, <laughs> and it's to get the leaves off so you have a white, you know, a white bowl. So you're saying they essentially burn it. Yeah, like chemical burn it off. Yeah. What happens there is then it goes into a cotton gin and then there's gin trash, right? So it's like the leaves and the seeds and all the parts. And it has all the chemicals in it, especially the seeds because it's it's fatty. And then that usually goes to factory farms, cattle uh, farms, which becomes footing for animals. The animals eat it. So it actually ends up in our um, food supply chain. Okay. I just about gagged. Yeah. Um, And then there's also, you know, cotton picking has a history, very exploitive history and current, actually not even history, like current, especially in China right now, there's slave prison labor issues and boycotts going on in parts of China. And there are organic standards. There is not enough supply to meet the demand for organic cotton. Um, And part of that has to do with Farmers maybe not having the resources or time to transition their fields to conventional because they'd probably have to go about three years before they could have certified organic cotton and who has three years to have no you know, income, not farmers. Um, and then there's a new regenerative organic certification in the United States that is really great because it uses farm practices that regenerate the soil, is really focused on soil health, uh, carbon sequestration 
but also labor and chemical use. So it's a really comprehensive certification, more so than organic, because it is both environmental and social components to it. That actually can be also be used for other fibers, not just cotton, including wool. Now, I've heard um, some bigger brands trying to get into the regenerative cotton space, but I haven't seen a lot of branding out there or a lot of messaging around the use of regenerative cotton in garments. The standard right now is organic, right? Like, so you'll see leggings by the packed brand that are all organic cotton and things like that. But the regenerative is like one step further. And I wonder how much further we have to come from a consumer perception standard to kind of move in that direction. It feels like there's a way to go. Yeah. Food usually leads, and that's kind of what's happening. Even Patagonia is one of the founding advisors or directors of this certification. And Mm -hmm. even though they're an apparel company, they're actually starting with Patagonia provisions. They're starting with regenerative food sources. I think a lot of the programs when it comes to fiber are being piloted. However, there is an organization called Fibershed that has worked in carbon farming with individual producers, primarily with wood, but now that wood wool but now they're um focusing <laughs> can you make clothes from wood? <laughs> you actually can we do can that now make, yeah tencel a lot of the cellulosic fibers are actually made from from wood you can work with fiber shed producers basically um and they have fiber shed it's been around for a long time now they don't work probably to the scale that larger public fashion corporations need but even North Face used their climate, partnered with them to create climate beneficial wool for some sweaters and like a little capsule collection, hats and sweaters and gloves and a few other things. So I, and Caring, the, the big luxury goods um, conglomerate have made commitments. There's a lot of regenerative merino options now. It's definitely being invested in by some of the more pioneering larger brands, actually, yeah. As we look at this as a big kind of subject, because fashion is, you know, the, I think the thing that's starting to get more negative press is this whole idea of fast fashion, right. of only wearing an item three or four times before you get rid of it. You know, either you're paying it forward to a friend, but most people, you know, just put it in the donation box and think that it's ending up in a second life. But often that is not the case, right? It is absolutely not So let's case. talk about that cycle and why it's so important. And then... I'd like to hone in on a little bit of what's happening from a fashion trend perspective. I see them as crazy maybe, but you know, it's a throwback to the eighties and literally the mom jeans and all of that, like literally jeans that were (laughs) sold in the eighties are being repurposed today as high fashion. And I think that's kind of incredible. So let's kind of talk about that journey, what you're seeing and um, what consumers can do to be more mindful as they go about their day-to-days and buy new items of clothing? Fast fashion, trend, personal style, it's, it's all very much um, related. So fast fashion is the business model. Is in, it doesn't matter how much organic cotton, regenerative cotton, doesn't matter how many material substitutions they make, it is a unsustainable business model. The idea of having infinite growth and that, that type of pricing structure that Um, is also financially unsustainable for their partners in the supply chain, will never be. Well, I don't care how much marketing they put into telling you that they are sustainable. They are 100% not sustainable. And those goods, primarily made of petroleum-based polymers, whether recycled or not, like polyesters and other derivatives of polyester, are poisoning us and polluting primarily the global south. So when you 
donate your clothes, the Goodwills and you know the, the charity shops are totally overrun by fast fashion. And it has very little to no value. And it ends up, it goes a lot of places. <laughs> and it often ends up in countries in, in the global south um, where it becomes their trash problem. Or it ends up in the ocean. Or it ends up in landfill where it um, off-gasses. Um, it just incredibly detrimental to both local economies, the environment, health. It's not, you're not making a donation that will have a second value in any way. Having said that, if you are creating garments with the intent that they have longevity, um, not only will someone wear them for a long time, they will also, if they, you know, sell them or they'll have an opportunity to resell them and or if it's a charitable donation, someone will actually see the value in them and be able to, to reuse it. But the fast fashion is not designed to last any period of time, <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. Fast fashion also depends on, on trend. Even the larger brands, I mean, have larger, may, maybe more luxury brands create this sense of false scarcity um, that like, oh, you need this next thing, you need this next thing versus here are these you know, beautiful pieces that you can love and have and can be integrated into your personal style or whatever you want to communicate versus having to buy the new thing every quarter. <laughs> you, know, there, you know, there's a lot of seasons. Like the mom jean, for example, I'm, I'm not totally against that if you're literally buying a pair of vintage jeans. You know, I mean, there's a lot of old denim out there that could use another life. That is a pretty hardy construction for a garment and they do last um, a long or potentially can last a long time if they are um, designed in a way that was you know meant to be actual workwear that like holds up yeah no I just think I look at them and think that particular style is so unflattering <laughs> on a curvy girl like me that I am just like okay this does not look good. Yeah. Like I, I have a small waist, but wide hips and a little bit of a behind, you know? Yeah. And it's not, it's just not a good look for me. Like you can put it on the, the thin model-esque beautiful girl and it's fine. I don't personally love it, but um, I'm seeing more and more of those uh, kind of entering our new fashion world. And I, I think it's healthy. It's common for us to nod back 30 years, 40 years to fashions of the past. But I personally find myself gravitating more to, you know, some of the simpler designs that even preceded that, you know, right. from the 50s or 60s, like the A-line frame dresses that just look really nice and are flattering on a lot of body types, you know, choosing some bold prints that come from the past, but like look really good today too. And kind of refining my own wardrobe along those lines. And then I find I don't want to get rid of them. They're pieces that I exactly. value and love. And wear again because they're kind of classic, you know, it's not like something that's a flash in the pan. I love that. And I, you know, fast fashion hasn't been around, it's like 20 years old. So I don't think it would take that much deprogramming for us as consumers to go back to a time when fast fashion didn't exist. And style, I believe is really recognized when someone sees you wearing something multiple times, they recognize you for this look or this jacket or or whatnot. It's not because you have the latest trend every couple of weeks. You know, that's not style. That shows you follow trend <laughs> versus have this like curated 
sense of style um, and wardrobe. Yeah, I remember reading an article. It was before the pandemic when uh, this younger millennial professional chose to write an article about shifting to a uniform for work. Yeah. So she just got a simple outfit and bought multiples of it, and it was all she wore. And it was like simple white top, black pants, felt comfortable in every day, didn't feel like she had to spend all this extra time choosing what she was going to wear or laboring over that, some simple jewelry to go along with it. And it also enabled her to minimize her wardrobe so it wasn't so overwhelming. And the routines that she experienced were just a little bit more comforting long-term. Now, that might get boring. You know, you might feel like, oh, well, I want more variety. Or are people going to think I'm just wearing the same clothes I wore on Monday on Friday? And we have this judgment kind of sphere in our head. But the reality is most people don't actually think that no, way. No, yeah. It's, it's the self, the, the inner id that rears its ugly head and says, right. oh no, I'm concerned with what other people think about what I'm wearing and what that might say about me. In that case, this individual just broadcasts, like she shared with her community, like I'm, I'm trying this new thing. I'm going to switch to kind of a Mr. Rogers style of clothing. Just have the same thing I wear every day and see what that's like it removed that judgment stigma from her experience. I'll have to go f- I love that. find that article yeah. and share it, you know? No, I love that idea. I, my, I have a grandmother who was like a really um, master seamstress. So she would buy things and she would also make it fit her, but she would buy multiple. If she found something that she really liked or fit well, she usually bought at least two colors because it does take a lot of time to find things that feel like you want to wear them and represent you and also fit. So it's, it is a real time saver. <laughs> and I think you end up looking like you do have a sense of style because people recognize you for a look or silhouette. Let's talk about the social impact of fashion beyond just what you wear, what you look like, and whether or not it ends up in landfill. There's this whole expectation I think we have around getting something for relatively inexpensive, buying a shirt for $20, or perhaps you're a thrift shopper and you aren't quite into buying used, so you go to Ross and you buy your clothes there and you spend like maybe $50 on an outfit, sometimes even less, and you feel like you got a screaming deal, right? But we don't necessarily think about the the labor exploitation right. that goes into the production of those garments. So I'd love for you to talk for a moment about that and just the the ways in which you see your work and fashion trends shifting so that we do less of that. There's two parts to this because I do really feel for consumers because in many ways, this isn't their fault. They don't have the luxury of buying with their values. Even if they knew about labor exploitation, it wouldn't make a difference because they just don't have the income or the disposable income to make purchases in the way that they would like to. And I think that's a bigger like macro economic <laughs> issue that I would agree with yeah, you. Yeah. That, um, that I don't think is fair to put on the consumer. The truth is, is that there has been this movement to conscious consumerism and it hasn't done anything. Like wages haven't haven't gone up. They're still polluting the environment. These companies are still growing. It it just we would it might make us feel good in the short term, but it's ultimately not the mechanism that drives change within corporations. You know, they might take a hit here and there because there's cancel culture, but ultimately um, they answer to their shareholders, not to consumers. But what happens, I think, is that we've been trained to expect clothing to be cheaper than it really is. So if a t-shirt is $5, someone is not getting paid. I mean, if 
you know, the, the cotton was maybe grown in India. The t-shirt was maybe cut and sewn in China. And then maybe, I mean, it's probably traveled multiple countries and then come back here. It's been in a warehouse. There's just no way you can do that for $5. I think for personal reasons that you just discussed about how like building a wardrobe and investing in pieces for me personally is really satisfying. I've worked in fashion for 20 years. I don't, I have a very edited tight closet because I really bond with my, my pieces and or the designers that I want to spend my money with or trade with. I argue that that is actually really satisfying. So if there is a way that you could sort of switch your thinking as a consumer, you know, I think you have very little control over a supply chain, but you do have control over how you, how you feel when you're in those clothes. So the larger global supply chains, the biggest issue is that I think by design, honestly, they are opaque. The brands don't own the factories that they work with. And making a garment is actually an incredibly complicated process. And between, you know, growing fiber or literally turning oil petroleum into, you know, a fiber is not like a simple process. And then you have to actually make the textile, you have to weave it or knit it, you have to cut it. There's a lot, usually a lot of treatments, then there's sewing, there's finishing, whatnot, that it ends up probably hitting a lot of different vendors that the company doesn't own. But in being opaque, the companies often say that they don't have any, you know, responsibility because they can't, you know, I can't see it. So, so how am I able to control the carbon impact or if we're putting water with chemical dyes into the public water system or... Well, they can, they can almost claim like ignorance, ignorance right? Yeah. They're kicking the can down the road. Yeah. It wasn't us. It was this other person. Well, they got your business. Right, you bought right. their fabric. You played into that, right? right? right. It's easier to not hold that blame. Right. And it certainly benefits them not to, right? Right. I thought, I've been looking at your sweater for a bit oh, now, thanks. and I, I'm betting that it has a story since you hold and covet, you know, <laughs> these pieces of clothing that you've owned. Yeah. Does your sweater have a story? Do you want to share that? I'm a knitwear fanatic. I love sweaters. And I bought this from Michaela Gregg. I ironically have never really been able to actually afford the fashion that I design and produce, but I really like supporting or attempting to support small designers. I think they make very thoughtful, beautiful pieces. So I usually buy my knitwear at the end of the summer. If you can afford to pay full price for Go small ahead. designers, please just do it. But um, yeah, I, I think they make very thoughtful, high quality clothing. I love Rachel Comey. I love Ula Johnson, Michaela Gregg. There's a lot of really small designers that I think are, for me, are worth the investment. And I get really excited to wear all the time. The other thing, one quick, real quick, I wanted to go back to supply chain is that when you, when you can't see or you don't have a direct relationship with your factories or your suppliers is that you just make demands versus partnering. And so often susceptible working populations say yes to prices and or margins that aren't actually financially sustainable for them because the other choice is like hunger or, you know, or no job. It's very predatory honestly, are the part of brands to not partner to figure out what everyone needs to make it um, a mutually beneficial situation. That's beautifully said. Now, I want to talk about polyester and getting back to some of the, um, I know, I, I'm I'm literally <laughs> wearing a little polyester jacket that I've had for a long time. And I think the same is true of the shirt. 
I feel like sometimes when I have these conversations about fast fashion, like somebody's coming for my wardrobe. And there are things about these synthetic fabrics that make them really easy to maintain. So you have things like, um, again, like the clothes I'm wearing on my top half that you see right now that they don't fade. um, They don't rip very easily. They don't take a lot to maintain. They're stain resistant, generally speaking. They pack really light. I'm able to shove them in a suitcase and they don't wrinkle. And so when I travel, again, like all of that is easy. And I think ease is often what drives purchasing decisions. I don't need to go to the dry cleaner to get it pressed. It just goes in the washing machine. Probably not that difficult to sort, you know, but even if I put this pink shirt with this black and put it in the washer, they're not going to stain or run off on each other. So again, all these things, this list, laundry list of things that I think keep consumers buying products that are maybe less mindful of the environment. In my case, just not wanting to let go of them because I already made this purchase and I still like them and I don't want them to end up in landfill. I wondered if you could kind of give us a lens, help us understand how we can make decisions as we head forward that perhaps are more mindful of the environment and our impact on people that are working in garment and apparel manufacturing. Polyester comes from big oil, uh, you know, big oil companies. And right now, and they've been, you know, selling to us that this is a really, the benefits of polyester because obviously it, Mm -hmm. it behooves them. And yes, polyester can add strength. And yes, there are some ways you can design the fiber so that it gives you the benefits, you know, that you just like less wrinkling Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, I'm not totally opposed to wrinkling. Um, and (laughs) it can be fashionable, like with linen. Yeah. But it is made for oil and big oil sees the writing on the wall for combustion engines and, or has for a while. And they're like, okay, where, what do we do now? We put this into plastics and not, and that includes polyester that includes polymers that make up fibers. And the only way fast fashion can actually exist is by cheap polyester. It's literally um, fossil fashion. You know, it, w- it like wouldn't exist. It's the, it's... Maybe we should call it that now. Yeah. There was actually a really good article out called Fossil Fashion, um, re- a report that kind of describes the history and supply chain um, and the environmental and social impacts. And so then on top of it, they also sold us that like, oh, plastic's so great because you can recycle it. Well, that's not we true. You're bad at recycling. Yeah. Not, yeah. It's not happening. It's not a circular. Uh, we don't have mm-hmm. the infrastructure or technology to really um, recycle in the way that needs at the, at the pace with which plastic clothing and products and accessories are, are being made. Because we've overproduced all these garments and accessories and shoes and whatnot, they end up in landfill or, ocean, or often ocean. They also release microfibers we've been marketed our PET, recycled. Like, okay, let's pull it, pull it out of the ocean and then we'll recycle it and we'll turn this, these plastics into fiber and garments again. And the problem with the RPT-based garments is that they release more microfibers because it's like a copy of a cop. Co- it's like less, you know, stable fiber. They're essentially more brittle. They're more brittle, right? yeah. It requires this chemical called antimony, which is incredibly cancer-causing. It's not all polyester fibers, but some release endocrine disruptors that are causing mass infertility, global infertility by 2045. Did you just see that study come out? No, um, but I have read similar ones. So yes. It affects um, men's scrotums actually. And 
fertility rates are, are dropping to the point where it could be zero by 2045. So we're, po- we're poisoning ourselves, basically, um, for the sake of stuff. Mm-hmm. Polyester also holds stink that we can't, we don't have like a, any sort of cleanser detergent to get, that is so true to get rid of. Yeah. yeah. I have never, even for the brief moment, moment that I thought it was like the key to a circular economy. I personally, I don't like the hand feel. I don't find it particularly breathable. I'd rather be a little bit wet in my cotton shirt or leggings. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a lot of uh, marketing from big oil and it's not a good use in textiles. It's dangerous, honestly. Wow. So uh, you have me thinking about my honeymoon (laughs) and let me tell you why. Um, My husband and I, one morning and we were on the island of Kauai and I just wanted to see the sunrise over the ocean. And because I'm on the West Coast, I only see typically sunsets. I don't see sunrises, right? So we're on this beautiful island. It's our first or second night. So we're still not quite adjusted to the time zone. So early doesn't feel that early. So I'm like, let's get up before dawn. We'll hike to the furthest east point we can get to. We're going through resort golf clubs and, you know, things like that. Ending up on this coast that was just ocean side of the Lahui Airport in Kauai. There's like this uh, chain link fence and a frontage road that goes along there. Like nobody, as far as tourists, are going to this beach at all, right? We run into one guy out there throwing net fishing who's a local. I see what looks like a grave, like with a cross in the ground. (laughs) And then a beach completely littered with plastic. Mm. And what was really interesting, I... um, I had flip-flops on at the time, and I slipped on one of the lava rocks. So my flip-flop kind of broke because flip-flops are not meant to survive, (laughs) right? They're just like foam and plastic. And then the irony of it was that the entire beach was strewn with left flip-flops, not right ones, because how currents work. All the left flip-flops would end up on this beach, and I'm sure the right flip-flops are somewhere else because of how the currents kind of separated them just based on how they're shaped, right? Yeah, interesting. I couldn't find a flip-flop to go ahead and replace my broken one. My husband and I also noticed uh, nothing but like just littered nets strewn along the beach that were obvious old buoys, containers from shampoo bottles and things like that all over this beach. And then amidst all of this, I see these little tiny tracks that look like bird tracks, but they're not quite. Something's different about them. And I realized that they were sea turtle nests. Mm. And the sea turtles that had hatched, the hatchlings had come out and were basically trying to find their way over these mounds of nets and flip-flops and plastic junk So my husband and I spent this pre-dawn hour and into the sun being pretty high in the sky, you know, essentially clearing a path for these sea turtles, the the nest that hadn't yet hatched, to be able to make it without getting stuck in, you know, nets or whatever else. You know, we were only had like a backpack and what we were carrying. So we ran out of water eventually. And I ended up like hiking back to our resort with the ridiculousness of this giant stick with a bunch of garbage tied to it <laughs> right. so I could dispose of it properly. And the knowledge that we are really just trashing our planet. And and I haven't bought a pair of flip-flops since because I found that traumatizing. <laughs> And because it just became so evident to me that this is garbage clothing. 
So I'm hoping that I can become more mindful even as time goes on. I don't make a lot of new clothing purchases, to be frank, because I have a fairly extensive wardrobe and I have now started going to local thrift shops and and trying to buy. Right on. I think that's a more responsible way to go. Find clothes that fit me great and that I could give a second life to. So I feel less guilty about, you know, where it might end up. I'm wondering if you have some wisdom to share from curating your own very targeted wardrobe for the ladies that might be listening, because I think we would all aspire to something a little more mindful. I'm keenly aware of of textiles, and I know which textiles are nice and which are hardy, mm-hmm. and I know construction. It's easy for me to spot. Having said that, for someone who you know doesn't, even just the, the hand feel, like touching it, feeling it, looking at the seams on the inside, looking how it's finished, kind of feeling the weight of the garment, you can kind of get an idea of the quality of of the garment. And then sort of asking yourself, like, do I want to have a relationship with this garment? <laughs> there are certain designers that I that I gravitate to. And then I really just don't look at anything else. I don't really have the the time or mental space to do so. I remember a podcast with Oliver Sacks and he talks about how he had a very prescribed, like he ate the same thing every day. And it's because he said he lived in New York. And if he had to think about what he was going to eat for every meal, he would have no time left to think about really important things. And so I, that's what I kind of feel like with my closet. Like if I know I can fill it with some pieces that I really love that fit well, that I want to have a relationship with, I wouldn't say I have like, a although this year my uniform would be sweatpants. <laughs> I wouldn't say I have a uniform, but I have a curated group of sweaters, blouses, pants, and then some special dresses that I keep forever. I mean, as long as they fit me, I, I keep forever because they make me happy, at, you know, like every time mm-hmm. to my, go to my closet. I have this one Isabel Morant dress I bought definitely 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, silk dress that is like my often a, a wedding dress, not, mm-hmm. not me getting married, like me going to weddings. It makes me happy every time I think about that trip. I think that I got to buy this dress and it's this beautiful silk purple paisley. And it just makes me so happy <laughs> every mm-hmm. single time. Well, I love that. No, I, I really think that it's interesting that often price isn't indicative of quality. Right. It's something I've been thinking about, you know, as you look at this piece that might be a couple hundred dollars and it's, you know, essentially a, a torn up t-shirt sometimes, right, you right. know, or or jeans that have been distressed and essentially made to be worn for less time right. because they've been so distressed. So I wondered if you could talk about just how you find these items because the Center for the Advancement of Garment Making should have some connection to perhaps helping people choose those brands or choose those makers that um, are creating responsible fashion. Yeah. I mean, I don't buy anything distressed. What I do is work with both brands and fashion professionals who want to make these high quality you know, sort of timeless garments that are, Mm -hmm. I I call them heirloom quality, right? And so I know how to do that. I know how to help you source. I know how to fit like sew and finish. I know how to reduce waste. I know how to pattern. I know how to elevate the art of garment making Um, because Mm -hmm. often it's just, you know, sewers aren't looked at as the, the true artisans or craftspeople that they are. And often we don't actually utilize their whole skill sets. We make them sew up ugly t-shirts when really they could be making, you know, beautiful garments. So anything distressed, I just am not, 
a big fan of because I think it looks like you bought distressed clothing. I think if you buy a pair of raw denim jeans and wear them in, that looks way cooler than you know if you buy distressed. So distressed, as a rule of thumb, is probably not a good idea. Um, what you don't want my acid wash jeans? <laughs> acid wash actually it depends. It depends on the. I mean, acid wash. Ideally, yeah, you don't want any like washed jeans, but you're looking, it's weird. I almost feel like I have to do this with garments. Like someone has to stand next to me and we have to go on a shopping trip and I could show seams and explain hand feel. But I don't know. I think once someone starts looking and, you, you just know, notice. compare, yeah. yeah, a couple different brands, like go into um, a few different stores and, you know, you'll see, you'll see the difference. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. I would love to just offer you the floor. If there's a question that I haven't asked you that you wish I had or something you'd like to dig into. I actually have a question about your, about your polyester. Like, do you, yes. so is it vintage or is it new? Like, do you seek it out for, um, I know you said for the functionality, but do you, do you, is that the main reason why you seek it out or is it also price? No, I think it's twofold, right? I, I have quite a bit of vintage clothing that I have bought over the years too. Like I have some fantastic 1970s crazy printed dresses that are could only be made in polyester. Like right. nothing else would work to make these colors kind of paisley designs come out and just pop the way they do. So I have some that are, are like that, that I almost look at as costumes now, but I've literally had since I was 16 years old and I'm going to be 45. So, you know, these yeah. are items that I probably will never let go of. Um, I have some dresses from the the 50s and 60s. Like, a, you know, I have green gabardine wool dress. I have others that are synthetic and obviously synthetic. Usually the lining was cotton or some other natural oh, uh, material, but yeah. then sometimes the, um, the exterior of it is not. So, you know, I don't have the same guilt for those items. But I have sometimes just bought, hey, I know that this will pack well because I did so much traveling um, right. and working as a professional in sales leadership, you know, where I'd be gone two, three times a month. And being able to pack small was really mm. ideal. And also, um, you know, to have something that would look professional and not need to be ironed and things like that. I do have some newer items. It's been a while since I've honestly bought anything in the polyester yeah. kind of framework because I am aware, but I don't get to refresh my wardrobe that often, often? Yeah, <laughs> especially this last year. I'm just kind of treading water, if that makes sense. Yeah. I am also cost conscious, but I've been willing to pay, you know, $100 for a really nice vintage dress too, um, right. something that is used, but in good shape. So I think it just um, a full spectrum approach to clothing, I think in general. That is the thing about vintage polyester garments. Fast fashion didn't exist. So they were actually built for longevity and will last long as opposed to a cheap polyester H&M shirt doesn't really have much second value, but maybe the dress that you bought from the fifties or the seventies will, because it's made in a different way. It's not meant, you know, it still might smell, but at least you're keeping it in use. It's not in landfill, you know, and it's not meant to like disintegrate, you know, or fall apart. I see the value in vintage polyester. It's really the new fast fashion polyester that I feel like is so troublesome. And the other thing that I think like some of the marketing that has gotten to us and why we don't really understand fibers is like wool, for example, is the first performance textile. Like wool suiting does not wrinkle. It floats on you. It's so, it's breathable. 
It doesn't stink. Uh, it will repel water. Like their wool is really um, amazing for travel and is not just, I feel like can be worn in, in all seasons. Yeah, I think people have this perception that it's a, a winter clothing, Yeah, right? no, it's thermodynamic. Um, it just so, depends on the use. Like this, I'm not going to wear in the summer, but I would wear a merino wool t-shirt, which is a thin knit um, designed for summer use. Uh, and it's great. It doesn't smell and it breathes. That's really nice. Yeah. You know, I think if we can be more mindful in our clothing choices, it'll have a trickle effect into other arenas as well, right? Yeah. Because then you suddenly start noticing more. Now, I know plastic that has been produced basically since the 50s is, where is it? It's in our oceans. It's in our landfills. It's it's something that is not going away as a problem. And manufacturing even just seems to be increasing, even as we learn about all the detrimental effects, I think because of what you're talking about from the oil and gas companies wanting to do, you know, have a revenue stream, have an existence beyond where they are presently. And I've also read the statistics that essentially most people are consuming the equivalent of a credit card of plastic every week. Yeah. And that's coming from the fish they consume, the animals they consume, because um, guess what? The plastics you wash in your washing machine, microplastics go into our waterways, which end up in the ocean, um, in addition to all the litter and trash that is literally in our oceans that breaks down, that fish eat. And that then other things eat and then we eat, right? So this is not the ideal situation and we need to move towards something different. If you had one wish for our consumer audience, what would it be? I actually wish for government policy for us because that will give us options. Um, I think at this point, you know, the industry has been really poor at self-regulating and that the policy will create or demand safer supply chains, uh, less carbon emissions, or I would say more just supply chains, also safer, and make the brand responsible for the product through the end of the life. Like it can't just end up as litter. They can't just produce things. So there is some of that policy happening in Europe. And I think they will lead the way as they, as they usually do. Um, and that will give us as consumers more options to align our values with our purchases or, you know, with our spending habits, with the way that we um, use and reuse goods. And, or if we have infrastructure set up specifically for that type of circular economy. I have a question to clarify because you mentioned policy, but I'm not exactly clear on what policy you're talking about. Are you referring to policies that relate to the manufacturer having some culpability or responsibility for the materials? Brands, yeah. What exactly are you talking about? Often large brands have a no, like hands-off approach to their supply chain. Like we're not responsible. This is in a different country. This is a vendor that we don't own. And really, it's making brands responsible for the impacts of their entire supply chain because they have, like I said, both grave social. Often, um, you know, there's a lot of human human trafficking happening in fashion supply chains or apparel supply chains. There's a lot of things happening on the local level environmentally. There are labor exploitation and environmental impacts. And the brand needs to be responsible for that because the manufacturers just don't really, they don't have much power or extra, they're being paid so little that they don't have money to invest in, say, renewable energy or, or any of the things that would need to, to bring them 
up to levels that you, just you and I would think are safe, standard business practices. Now, are there some certifications that you would recommend people look for if they're looking for a fair branded clothing item? Is it fair trade? I mean, I'm just curious if there is anything they can look for. Yes and no. Um, Certifications is a super not straightforward subject matter. There are a lot of great certifications, but they may just Address one thing. Address right? one thing and not yeah. the entire supply chain. Got certified is pretty comp- comprehensive, G-O-T-S. That is the probably the most visible consumer-facing certification that you could look for. Other ones are for your labor certified that may, be, may or may not be on a tag. That may just be, you know, often companies who have sustainability reports will say, what some of their uh, factory partners are RAP certified or fair labor certified or or whatnot. Sometimes that also hurts smaller manufacturers or artisans that can't afford those certifications that are working in otherwise really lovely ways. It's a bit of a mixed bag. And that's why policy, you know, with some standards, uh, environmental and social standards would, you know, sort of be the overarching guide. And then they change everything. Yeah. Yeah. And then you would need auditors and and people to make sure the laws were being followed and the regulations were being followed, but we wouldn't need hundreds of certifications. Well, great. I just want to thank you for your time today. This has been a really enlightening conversation. Um, I'd also like to invite you just to share if there's any way in which you think that the people listening to this show can change their habits. If there was one thing that you would suggest for them to do to make a difference in, in some small way. The Remake campaign is more like citizen activist or consumer activist organization that demands change within supply chains, demands change from brands. And they are a really great organization to get involved with and or sign petitions, donate, use your social media. They have made some... Could you say that again? You said We Make... It's called the Remake, Mm R-E-M-A-K-E. They have had some pretty impressive impact, especially during COVID when many brands just left factories unpaid with goods that they weren't allowed to resell, like billions of dollars worth of goods. Wow. That's, that's a whole different conversation, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> so they started, a, it was called a, the pay up campaign and they got some large brands to pay up. Other brands still have not paid up. Free People has not, Urban Outfitters has not, Kohl's has not. There's quite a few brands that have not, but then there are also quite a few larger brands that have. If our audience is interested in the work you do, Caroline, how would you suggest that they reach out to you? My website sort of sums up all the things that I do. The short address is www.thecagm.com, short for the Center for the Advancement of Garment Making. That also is my address. And I offer primarily work for brands, uh, circular design services, and also sustainable strategy. But I also do one-on-one coaching with fashion professionals um, wanting to sort of change their careers. And then I offer the Sustainable Leadership Masterclass, uh, which is an eight-week, incredibly comprehensive course, everything you'd ever want to know about uh, fashion sustainability, business models, design, circularity. That starts May 17th. It's for eight weeks. It's virtual. Um, And I invite everyone to check that out. All the details and syllabus are on there. I used to teach at Parsons. So it's it's university level. 
<laughs> wow, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today and talking about alternatives to this crazy fast fashion that has been basically infiltrating our lives with more plastic. So I appreciate you and the work you're doing with the Center for the Advancement of Garment Making. Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you. It's pl- my pleasure. Now, as we opened our talk today, we invited you to care a little bit more about fashion and perhaps producing a smaller imprint on the planet and the choices that you're making. Now I'd like to invite you to act. That action could be as simple as sharing this podcast and the work that Caroline is doing. You could also visit her website and start to look a little bit more closely at the choices you're making as you purchase new items of clothing. To find more suggestions, you can visit our action page on caremorebebetter.com. You can also look at show notes where I'll include links to Remake as well as to Caroline's website. Again, I invite you to join the conversation and be a part of the community we're building. You can follow us on social spaces at caremorebebetter. Links to where you can find us are always in show notes. Now, thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 